I'm Jordan Marr, and this is The Ruminant, a podcast about food politics and food security and the cultural and practical aspects of farming. You can find out more at theruminant.ca or email me, editor at theruminant.ca. I'm on Twitter, at ruminantblog, or find me on Facebook. All right, let's do a show. Hey everyone, it's Jordan, and I still exist. It's been a while, but I still exist, so let me catch you up real quick. It was a crazy year, it was a crazy COVID year, I made it through okay, I hope all of you did too. In the end, actually, revenues were just fine, there was just a whole bunch of uncertainty at the start. Did you like those ruminant drive casts, those kind of spontaneous calls and spam calls and that? I wish I could have done more, it didn't happen, but it's kind of inspired a plan, a plan for this year coming about the kind of episodes I want to do. Not going to talk a lot about that right now. Stay tuned for that. But here is what I want to talk to you about. A really fun thing, a really cool thing is that I do some volunteering for the organization that oversees organic agriculture in British Columbia, where I farm. And I was on their conference planning committee. And of course, we had some big decisions to make about what we would do with a conference in a pandemic. And I pitched the idea of replacing all of the regular in-person seminars with a podcast series. Now I'm going to do a huge yada, yada, yada. So yada, yada, yada. I ended up being hired as the coordinator for the conference. And I have been spending the last two to three months just furiously producing uh, a podcast that has turned into like 25 or 30 episodes. I had a small team of interviewers. I did a ton of the interviews myself and I have been editing like crazy and we've put together a really great program. So in this episode of The Ruminant, I'm going to share three or four clips with you. And I will tell you right now, they're not just teaser clips. I've taken some segments from some episodes that are interesting in and of themselves, these segments. You will get something out of these segments. But they're also meant to tease the conference podcast and to whet your appetite. So here's how the conference works. The centerpiece of the conference is actually the podcast. And so on January 15th, or just after, we are going to be releasing the podcast in just about its entirety. I'll probably have a few episodes lagging that I'll post within a week or two after that. But most of the podcast, 20 to 25, will get posted behind a paywall for ticket holders to the conference. There's other stuff associated with the conference too. There's an online gathering on February 28th. That's going to feature one of the gentlemen who is featured in one of the segments in this podcast episode that I'm sharing with you. His name is Darren Qualman, more on him in a little bit. He's gonna be talking about the climate crisis and how farmers are going to have to be adapting and mitigating uh, to deal with it, how to farm amidst a climate crisis, how policies will need to change, how food systems will need to change. Should be pretty interesting. He's an expert on farming and climate change, and he's with the national, the Canadian organization called the National Farmers Union. There's also other fun stuff. There's a photography contest with beautiful handmade mugs on the line. I won't get into it all. If you want to learn more about this conference and consider attending, We've got a pretty good slate of content produced spanning lots of topics of interest to organic, sustainable, regenerative type farmers and gardeners. Don't take my word for it. You can go to the ticket page for the conference. It is BC, as in British Columbia, BC Organic 
www.eventbrite.ca. Head over there. You can learn more about what we've got going on. And if you are interested, you can buy a ticket. And if you do so by January the 15th, you can take advantage of an early bird rate minus the special only to ruminant podcast listener promo code that I'm going to give you now and also one more time at the end of the episode. So that promo code is ruminant30, ruminant30. It's going to give you 30% off the current rate or 30% off a slightly higher rate if you don't get there by January 15th. The rate as it sits right now is 100 bucks. I think it's a steal for the really rich series that we've produced. And I know all of us are used to consuming lots of podcast content for free, but the reality is it costs a lot to produce this stuff. Um, In this case, it has taken hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of my time as well as other people's time. And I'm super grateful to actually be being paid for it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've been really grateful to those of you who have donated to the Ruminant Podcast Um, but for the most part, the donations I've taken in on this show have just helped pay the bills on keeping the website going and the server space for the podcast going, et cetera. But I'm actually making an income for this. And, and, and so you buying a ticket actually indirectly is supporting certainly me and, and indirectly this podcast, if you think it through. So, uh, I'm going to stop talking as soon as possible. I want you to hear these four clips that I have, uh, clipped out of our conference episodes for you. So the first one, you're going to hear a part of my conversation with a brilliant man called Brian Spencer. He is an expert on predatory insects that we, some of us buy for our farms. He has been with a company in British Columbia that has sold uh, beneficial predator insects uh, for uh, two farmers for like decades. And he's been working for the company for decades and he knows like everything about this topic. It was one of my favorite conversations of this podcast. And I've just uh, sliced out uh, a segment of it that's about ladybugs and and what... what <laughs> this guy knows a lot about ladybugs. I don't know a ton about ladybugs. I, I think he'll teach you something about ladybugs and how they're used in the industry that you didn't know. Um, so I hope you like that. I will talk to you again when that segment's done and I'll introduce the next one. So here we go. Okay. Well, Brian, I'm going to, we're going to do one more tangent and then get to talking about those pillars of biological pest control. If that sounds okay. So in a separate conversation, I was, I mentioned ladybugs because, and I'll say, you know, I think in, at least in my cul-de-sac of the farming industry, that seems to be the one that most kind of think of when they think biological pest control is ladybugs say controlling yeah. aphids but you you mentioned you mentioned that the, the ladybug we all picture is 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 one that you can buy but is perhaps not the best species to use could you could you talk about that a bit i just found that curious. well you know there's a, there's a number of things with ladybug. there's no denying the poster child for the industry is the ladybug <laughs> and which is really ironic because um coccinillids in general like we actually produce two ladybugs that are um they're both little tiny black beetles uh one of them is specific for spider mite and one of them is specific for white fly um but in general the uh, the coccinillids have a couple of bad habits that um that really don't lend themselves to using them as an as a tool for biocontrol and the, the first one is the fact that they are grazers they don't 
they don't eradicate. They, um, if you give them an open choice in an open system like a big conservatory, they uh, they eat a lot of aphids. And actually, if it wasn't for ladybugs, we'd be up to our armpits in aphids. But they they never clean up. They always leave aphids behind uh, with their egg cluster, so that their eggs, when they hatch, there will be food for their offspring. And so, from a biocontrol point of view, that's a, a bad habit. Um, when you lock them into a cage or into a conservatory, in the end, they will be 100% effective because they'll have no choice. But if they actually have a choice, they'll graze, lay eggs, and move on. And and their their disbursement, when you get to the bigger ladybugs, like uh, the hippodendron that's harvested in the wild in California that we all know, um, or the new beetle that showed up about uh, 15 years ago in British Columbia called Harmonia, which is the Japanese multicolored lady beetle. They eat a lot of aphids, but they're constantly migrating and constantly moving. And uh, so University of California Davis was uh, trying to demonstrate um, uh, how well they could stay in their gardens. And so they did quite a famous experiment about... Uh, about 25 years ago, where they basically released, um, I think it was about 150 uh, ladybugs per day in their experimental garden, and they painted the legs with a different color every day. And then they went out there every day, and they were scouting in the garden and finding ladybugs, but it was driving them crazy because they could never find a ladybug that had the painted legs. And so their first assumption was uh, for some, they're, they're somehow able to clean the paint off their legs and so we have to stop the experiment and do something different. So, so they sort of dropped the experiments and tried to figure out different ways of painting or, or marking the beetles. And then uh, about a week later, Fresno State uh, entomologist phoned him up and said, hey, I, I knew about your experiment, and I've got some of your uh, painted legs here in my garden. Well, that's, you know, that's over 100 miles away. And, uh, and so the paint actually did last. What they, what they saw is what we've seen is that the ladybugs that you buy and release in your field uh, are not the ladybugs that you see the next day. Uh, the ladybugs you see the next day are the native ones that showed up because you've got aphids. And you bought the aphids because you had aphids, and the aphids are att attraction enough to attract the ladybugs in. So uh, so we try and discourage people from from buying the ladybugs for a number of reasons. And the main the main reason is efficacy, but also there's certainly a moral aspect. The, it's one of the last things on the planet that's still wild collected, and uh, and it really is causing a lot of serious concerns in the Sierra Nevadas. Uh, habitat destruction for you know these there's five grandfathered licenses to harvest the ladybugs, and they tend to hibernate under rocks up in the Sierra Nevadas, and so you know these five different individuals are driving up in their Hummers up the creek beds and shoveling them into burlap sacks and sticking them in a, in a fridge and uh, and so there and the other concern of course is that hippodemia harmonia has showed up in uh, california and it is displacing the hip, the native hippodemia as well and so the native population is under a lot of stress and it's going to probably become endangered in the next couple of years and of course the uh, the droughts that they've had in the forest fires haven't uh, haven't helped the situation so the, for the reasons you've just described, can stay away from this uh, species. Can you share the Latin name again? The so the California species that that you would recommend yeah, people stay away it's, from. It's the California, and and it's uh, there's another similar species in British Columbia. It's the native West Coast one. It's it's called Hippodamia. Okay. 
And and they're a great beat. I mean, as I said right at the beginning, if it wasn't for them, we would literally be up to our armpits and aphids. So it's uh, they have a tremendous impact on managing the total pest population. But as far as specific uses, uh, there are much better products that that persist and uh, stay in your uh, your cropping area. All right. Well, I think we'll finish our conversation by talking about those much better products. But um, now I want to move on back to kind of our main thread. So again, in a different conversation, you mentioned to me that like, I, I think, I think the way you described it was three pillars of biological pest control or three main concepts. And I, I, I thought I'd yeah. ask you to take, take us through them. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I have a bit of an advantage cause I wasn't actually trained as an entomologist. So I, being a microbiologist, I, I look at populations rather than individuals. And so I, th- I find that very useful in this business because we're really looking at, at the population trends and not necessary specifics. But yeah, the, the, if you look, pick up a textbook, an old textbook in entomology, uh, you'll see there's uh, basically three styles. Uh, one is called classical, uh, one is called conservational, and the other one is called inundative. And the industry that I'm in, um, we are the inundative industry. All right. So that's Brian Spencer. That is one short part of an ep- of a conversation that went on for about an hour or not quite. Uh, the whole thing was fascinating. So that's something to look forward to at the COABC 2021 Organic Conference. Now here's another one. Our government in British Columbia uh, has a ministry of agriculture and that ministry has uh, an industry specialist for the organic sector. Her name is Emma Holmes and she was one of the volunteer interviewers for the conference. I asked Emma who she would most like to interview and on what topic. And Emma considers herself a real soil nerd and wanted to interview another soil nerd. So she talked to professor Miranda Hart at a university in the interior of BC called UBC Okanagan. Miranda has a very strong background in microbiology and soil biology and does a lot of research in that realm. And so Emma had a long form conversation all about soil microbes with Miranda Hart. Here, you are just going to hear around 11 minutes of that conversation. And it starts with Emma asking Miranda about the efficacy of purchased microbes to apply as an input to your soil. Here you go. And so... As we are learning about the incredible feats that soil microbes are capable of, you know, what they're what they're doing, just some of maybe the very many functions that they do, um, I think it's so natural to want to ensure you have those microbes working in your system. I remember getting so excited about soil biology when I did a field school in Cuba. And when I got back home and was farming, I was just super excited about getting biofertilizers and compo- compost teas. Um, but I also kind of felt an, uh, like uneasy because I just felt like I didn't know very much and I didn't know where to go for the information. And I was kind of wondering, like, are these working? Um, is this, you know, worth my time to be putting these out? I had the pleasure of working on some really long established organic farms. So I was like, well, do they already have everything they need? Are these connections are already here? And then something that I've seen that you've touched on both in your academic work but also in an article you wrote for the Canadian Organic Grower as one example is could there be unintended consequences of deliberate inoculations with microbes Um, and so yeah I'd really like to hear more about your thoughts on um, you know for farmers who are like so excited about partnering with soil biology but maybe just things that we should be thinking about I mean 
so you see, there's a lot of stuff I got to unpack from what you just said. But I guess I'll start with the fact that, yeah, farmers are great. Farmers care about their soils and they love their soils. And they are, so, at least the farmers I work with, are so dedicated to improving their soils and making them the best they possibly could be. But the problem is, you're, what you're, you're right. How do you know? How do you know what's in your soil? How do you know what you need in your soil? And do you actually need to add anything? I mean, a lot of what farmers do that make a big difference in their soil is they add um, carbon, right? They add primarily just carbon. And yeah, they add these um, activated microbial complexes that, that I don't know what's happening with those. Nobody knows what's happening with those. But a lot of the time, I think what's happening is you're adding a lot of nutrients with them. And, and that's what's making... Um, that's what's making a difference for your productivity or your soils. Well, where I'm going with this is there's two things, right? We, farmers really want to be able to monitor and develop healthy soils, whatever that means. And I think just even that term, healthy soils, is really problematic because it's too vague, right? I mean, a farmer who's producing an annual crop who wants, like, big yields is going to have very different health requirements from a soil than someone who wants to restore like a shrub step grassland, right? So that it's not going to be the same thing, right? You're going to need different things. You're going to need, a, like farmers are going to need as much as they don't, you know, regenerative agriculture, organic agriculture, all of these things are high input and they're not high input of like synthetic biocides and fertilizers, but they're high inputs in terms of organic material. So that's one, and I don't have the data for you or the information for you to tell you whether or not farmers should be using microbial additives mm -hmm. because we don't know. We don't know, and it depends on the soil. And I always tell farmers that if you have healthy plants, if you have somewhat, if you have try to encourage as many different kinds of plants on your land as possible. That's the best way to ensure that you've got a robust microbial community. And that's probably good enough. If you've got plants that are happy on your land, then you're probably doing okay. You don't have to worry about microbes. I really don't. I really am suspect of these like designer microbes that say they're going to do things for you because I know that we don't know what microbes do. We know that microbes are important, we can't say yet what a specific microbe does. So if a company is selling you a microbe for your potato crop, for example, well, I feel that's just false advertising because we don't know any, we don't know if there are specific potato microbes. And I can tell you right now there aren't specific potato microbes. There's a ton of microbes that'll help your potatoes, but most of them are probably in your soil. I mean, okay, all the industry reps are going to hate this, and that's okay. That's okay because somebody has to ask these questions because mm -hmm. we don't have the data to support it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm working on cannabis right now, and um, cannabis is such a funny crop because there are, it's, you know, such a highly um, manipulated crop, artificially grown crop, right, or at least traditionally. Um, there are so many microbial products in the market for it, and yet we're – not able to get any of them to colonize these plants whatsoever wow the, the plant yeah the plant just doesn't want to grow with these microbes because the plant doesn't need the microbe because the micro you know these plants are just swimming in nutrient broths right and they have these sterile growing conditions so it's just it's frustrating for me to see all these products with these claims that i know are not tested so 
that's one part of the story, right? We don't even know if we need or if we should have these products. And I'm, I'm not going to put like, like condemn all of them because sure, maybe there's some cases they could be useful and we need them, but we don't know when and where those situations are. Mm-hmm. And my other, and as you said, the other thing to think about is, well, you're introducing an invasive species because if it's not invasive, it's not going to colonize your soil. So you, you want it, you want these microbes to be invasive if you're selling a microbial product or if you're making a microbial product in your, in your garage over the winter, like so many, you know, there's so many farmers around here that are making their own tinctures. Mm-hmm. But if, if they're not invasive, they're not going to work. So if they are invasive, well, what are they going to do to indigenous communities in your soil or what are they going to do to the indigenous communities in the soil in the forest that's bordering your property or the grassland that's bordering your property because these microbes move we know that microbes move globally they don't they're dispersed in the water they're dispersed in the air currents i mean there's evidence of our buscular mycorrhizal fungi from the gobi desert in california just from air currents alone so it's it it just makes me very nervous that we have such an embryonic understanding of how these communities function and how they are distributed among the globe. And yet people are moving them around and introducing these invasive species. It just makes me very uncomfortable and, and very nervous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, I think that's a good point about how you're saying it's, we want them to be invasive so that they work that means they're working we don't want the ones that like you said on the cannabis plants are just not even colonizing at all Um, right so then you're just buying something it's just a waste of your money but then if they do work what does that mean are we creating like as you you made a reference to the cane toad example in australia you know we don't want to we don't want to do that to our soil um and we don't want to hurt the wild areas that neighbor organic farms that's definitely not the intent of organic farming no, no, I know. And I know, and I know these people, people, but the problem is people don't, I mean, it's pretty obvious even being living in this pandemic, that people have a really poor understanding of how microbes work, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, all these people who are worried about masks, well, microbes move and they move quickly and you don't need very much of them to cause a big problem. So what do you think? So one thing I kind of started to move away from bio fertilizers as a farmer for these kinds of concerns like are they working um, and will they kind of be a negative consequence of I remember I was using this product that was from Japan and I was talking to a lot of other farmers that were using it and then I was kind of like hmm like we're gonna all have these microbes from Japan <laughs> that's strange like I crazy wonder, isn't it yeah it's kind of crazy it is yeah. and I was like well I wonder what microbes are here like nearby and that's when someone introduced me to Korean natural farming which for listeners who may not be familiar with it it's a system of techniques that introduce indigenous microorganisms from nearby wild spaces into a garden soil so I was doing things like putting rice out in the forest or the grasslands near my farm and then culturing some of those microbes and putting them back into the soil Um, and in my mind I was like well maybe I didn't I still didn't know if it was working but I felt like I may be minimizing the risk of doing, you know, bringing a really invasive species from far away into the system. Um, but then I well, also I guess did, like, hmm? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I just also didn't know if I maybe was colonizing a species I didn't want in high numbers and then putting that into my system. And so well, I guess yeah. I was going to ask you, what, what were you hoping to 
achieve by doing that? What are yeah. we trying to do? That's a great question. I was hoping to support, I guess I was thinking, oh, I'm in boosting my natural soil biology in my farm because I heard that, you know, even in organic farming, I was trying to do low till and um, put lots of organic matter back into the soil. But I just knew that I was maybe having a negative effect on the soil biology and I wanted there to be all that all those good players in there um so I was kind of doing it for a similar reason that I was doing compost tea sprays before I was wanting to support the plants and being connected to the soil environment have these kind of helpers to either help them forage for nutrients or um, water or different things like that help them prevent disease and so I was thinking, hmm, maybe the nearby areas will have some of the microorganisms that my soil is now missing. So maybe I should be culturing and then bringing them in. But I also had a lot of questions. I wasn't convinced that it was, you know, going to work, but I just thought it might be better than bringing in microorganisms from Japan, for instance. Well, I think I think your motivation is, is spot on. I mean, you want you want high soil biodiversity and you want it to be as native as possible right and I think it's a good instinct that yeah there might be higher diversity in the surrounding natural landscape than in your agricultural field but I guess my question would be why um, if you're using rice what you're going to do is you're just going to all right well if you found that interesting you well you know what I'm going to say Go check out bcorganic2021.eventbrite.ca to check out what else we got going on and to maybe buy a ticket to the conference. Next up for this episode, I spoke to fellow Canadian organic farmer Jeff Klug out in Ontario. Jeff, is it Root Down or Roots Down Organic Farm? I'm going to say Root Down Organic Farm. Sorry if I got that wrong. Jeff has been through a number of e-commerce platforms for his farm. Uh, that was kind of uh, catalyzed by the pandemic. And I'm in a similar situation. I've used a few e-commerce platforms as well. So between us, we were able to have uh, a conversation where we just aim to help people think about considerations that they need to put in if they're going to be uh, taking on an e-commerce platform for their farm for the first time or just moving over to one they haven't considered yet. And in this segment of our roughly 45 minute or one hour conversation, we are just talking about some of the considerations you need to keep in mind when you're shopping around for a platform. And in this segment, we'll also be touching on some of the pros and cons of a few of the platforms out there. Okay, so here is a segment between me and Jeff Klug. Um, so those are the three I have experience with. So I think we've both kind of given that summary. I'd really like to just jump in now to talking about how to choose this software and we'll spend a few minutes yeah. doing that, Jeff, and then we can um, then we can actually talk about each of these platforms that we've got experience with. Sound okay? Sure. Yeah. Awesome. So let's let's start with the one that is usually the first question that uh, farmers have if they're considering this stuff, which is price. Um, in my experience, you can kind of simplify this consideration to kind of two two models of of, of pricing, and there's also kind of one that integrates the two models. One is a percentage of your sales, which is scary. Um, and the other is a flat yeah. fee. And then there, there's the odd model that kind of incorporates the two. Is, has that been your experience? Yeah. I can I can start us off. We've both used Farmigo. 
And the, the model that yeah. Farmigo has always used is um, no upfront service fee, at least when I was using it. Like if you're a new customer with them, um, there's no upfront fee. There's a very lengthy onboarding process um, that you work with them to set up your initial um, account with all the details you need for your farm. And then you pay a, a small percentage of your sales. I believe it's around 2% of the sales that you do on the platform. Um, yeah. And I know that is a kind of a, it, it frustrates a lot of farmers because the more successful you are, the more you pay them. Like, and, and to me, and I, I'm interested to know what you think about that. Like if you, if you, if that stresses you out, it's just hard to imagine that like, if I double my sales next month, you know, I have to, with Farmigo, I'm going to pay them, you know, twice as much. Um, and that just doesn't, doesn't feel super fair when you know their marginal costs of like supporting you through that doubling in sales is, is much lower. How do you feel about, about percent based pricing? Well, it's kind of a mixed bag and this, especially with Farmigo, because I mean, there are a fair, a fair amount of people who aren't necessarily wild about Farmigo's corporate ethics as like, you know, as a business, um, that being said, um, if it works, it works. And, you know, for me, like it depends on how much price you put to quality of life in season. And I, at least for me, tend to have more money than quality of life in season. And if there's a way I can buy some quality of life in season, I'm probably going to do it. And, but what we have found with Farmigo is it works really well for what we're doing as a CSA and um, it's pretty much hours worked. There's no, it's never down. There's no glitches or anything like that. I do also know of two fairly large farms that have negotiated their own pricing structure with, with Farmigo. And so I think once you reach a certain level, you know, there's conversations to be had about that. Um, but you know, for the, mid-sized farm i i think it works pretty well and you know it, it's it's pretty transparent you know you know what you're getting into so i should, I should also add that, I... I should also add that with farmigo you only pay in the months you're doing sales which is like exactly a little different right because i only ever ran a summer csa so for the five or six seven months i wasn't selling i didn't pay yeah. whereas most of the companies that are charging you a monthly rate you're paying all year no matter what um Unless yeah. you unless you cancel your account, but then you kind of lose all the um, all your settings and 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 your customer lists and everything, so that becomes a headache in itself. Um, no, and you know we always have this perennial conversation every fall where we're like, "Are we going to do Farmigo next year?" <laughs> and you know, like, because you you know you get all these emails from like Harvey and all these other places, and and uh, you know we always end up just sticking with it because like you know it's to the point now where our you know, we have long-term CSA customers. They're pretty familiar with logging you, into you their do. You have to go. think. You have to think about ecosystem. Just like all of us have yeah. phone or internet browser ecosystems we're used to, it can be really jarring to switch. And so that is a yeah. a barrier to switching. And so, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, like our customers, like I, like I had a, I was having a conversation with someone the other day where, you know, we do this fall share and a woman showed up and she's like, uh, oh, I'm, I don't know. I'm like, are you sure you signed up for the fall share? And she said, hold on, let me log on to my Farmigo account. And she, on her phone, was like, oops, I didn't sign up. Sorry. 
and that was it. You know what I mean? And uh, I was like blown away by that. Yeah, so, I will. We'll um we'll talk some more about the 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 pros and cons in a bit because I I have lots of it's a very strong back end. I have lots of compliments for it, but, um, just yeah. to, just to move through pricing. So, um, you've, then you've got a company like local line that is generally you're paying a monthly fee. You save a bit yeah. if you commit for a year all at once. Um, and then they have like a lot of software companies. You can pay a little bit more a month for certain add-ons to your account, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I'm noticing that some of these companies also like they, they charge an upfront fee, like a service fee to get you going. And having gone through the, um, the sign up with Farmigo, I understand why, like some of the setup is, a, is very time consuming. So I understand why they want that commitment just to get you set up. Um, but it also becomes another barrier to moving. Like it would really hurt to, cause I've seen, you know, some of these fees can be two, three, four, five hundred dollars um, for, you know, to just to set up your account. And then that becomes like, you know, it's going to hurt if you realize three months in, you don't like it and want to switch. You've just, you know, it, you're going to be thinking about that money in your mind. Yeah, no, I, I, I never even really took that into consideration. Um, yeah, there's that too. I, I mean, I know with local food marketplace, I think it was, it was kind of a package deal. Like it's exactly what you say you pay, you know, there's, you know, your initial setup charge and then it's a monthly fee. And, um, you know, for our market, we're spreading that essentially amongst 35 vendors. So it's, it's extremely reasonable, like, you know, right. for what it is for an individual farm, I think it, you know, it becomes a bit of a different story, but again, at least it's fairly predictable. You know what you're paying every month. Whereas with farm, you go, sometimes you get the farm, you go bill and you're like, holy, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a sticker shock, <laughs> you know? For, for sure, so. for sure. Um, so let's now move on though and talk about another major consideration if you're going to choose a platform, which is w what is your type of selling? It really matters yeah. for for influencing what you're going to choose. Um, it sounds like both of us, I mean, we're, I'm oversimplifying, but both of us still feel good about Farmigo as ma for, for, for managing a CSA. Yeah. I, I mean, it also depends on what kind of person you are. Like, are you a spreadsheet person or not a spreadsheet person? And I've met tons of people who have created their own Google Docs and Google signups and all this stuff and manage their CSAs and seem to do just a fine job with it. But I'm not that person. Well, and so. I, yeah, I'll, I'll say neither am I. I really related to what you said a little bit earlier about like, um, you know, you've got cash flow it's your quality of life in the summer that you're, you're valuing. And that's where some of these pieces of software um, really simplify things. So if you, you know, if you, you're going to want to get a sense of a, what a company specializes in and probably a good question to ask as you're browsing around is like, figure out who they're, who is using the software and what kind of sales they're doing. Um, you gotta go, you gotta go beyond just their own marketing and promo and, and figure out, well, what, you know, what, what kind of farms are they attracting and, and try and talk to some of their customers. Um, yeah, I'm going to use a term that probably is obvious to most people, but I, I, I frequently say a la carte sales as another style. So this is just when like, this is more like listeners can think of your farmer's market stall is online. So you're operating like a farmer's market stall, you know, you, you, you're just, people can come on and make one purchase and, me and maybe that's for pickup. Maybe you're delivering. That's kind of a separate set of considerations, but a la carte meaning, um, you know, in my case, I set a minimum order for an order. But other than that, um, people don't have to commit for the season. So for, for a la carte 
um, purchasing, Jeff, um, that's what I use local line for my household distribution this year. All of my household focused distribution was not CSA. It was, it was, um, it was a la carte and, and I'll elaborate this on a bit, but that worked in a lot of ways that worked well with certain limitations on local line, but local line is a platform that definitely was designed more with a la carte ordering in mind. Fair to say. I, I think so. Yeah. And, but I mean, I still think, you know, one of the limitations with local line is you still have to log on and create an account before you can do anything. If I remember correctly, is that right? Yes. So, um, let's, let's, that was going to be another consideration, but we can, we can lump it in here. So oh, sure. another, yeah. th another thing, and this is more, so this gets back to the debate over the value of the front end versus the back end. Um, yeah. In, in a market where you're, you're not just selling your, your farm products really easily, where it's more of a buyer's market, you got to think more about the experience for the shopper. Um, and, and I know one thing that I at least was worried about this year um, with my sales on local line was how, how is that experience? And we could compare it to a, to a more generalized commerce pl platform like Shopify, where um, someone comes to your commerce site for the first time and it's a Shopify-based site, it's pretty quick for them to build an order and check out. And they don't necessarily need uh, an account in the system. So a barrier of entry for in, in my local line is if you, Jeff, want to shop from me, I need you to go and, and make a basic user account. So there's about two or three steps just to get you shopping. Um, and, and then from there, there's like, you know, a few steps to, to complete an order. Uh, whereas Shopify is a little more streamlined. Is that fair to say? That is, and that is, that was like the key consideration when we were um, choosing this platform for this delivery service in Ottawa was, you know, we were anticipating that this was a bit more of a, you know, it's an urban market. It's a bit more, it's a bit more competitive and that, you know, people were wanting that, you know, you were going to lose a certain portion of people when they clicked onto local line or Farmigo. It just, they just didn't get like, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to create a Farmigo account. You know what I mean? They'd just be gone. Yeah, to you know what I mean? totally. And because that's one of my, my frustration with Farmigo all the time I was using it was I found the front end just lacking compared to the beauty of their, of their back end. Um, yeah. So, I mean, to give an example about seller's market versus buyer's market, there was a period last spring during when the pandemic first hit where households were freaking out about supply chains. And so yeah. suddenly that barrier on local line um, or, or any platform that requires a user account to participate was like not a barrier. I had hundreds in a normal year, a regular year trying to sign up CSA customers was really slow. I had hundreds of signups over the course of two, three months, hundreds, like 800. Um, yeah. As an aside, most of them never ended up buying. They were mostly just panic signups. But the point is when they were because they were panicking i think they were willing to to get through that barrier to get on my system um yes. so context is is very much um important um so yeah. what we, we've briefly touched on a csa versus a la carte i want to mention and i briefly touched on it before if you are someone who grows two products right let's say asparagus and strawberries and you tend to focus on bulk sales whether it's to um you know into the wholesale chain or retail chain the, the system or, or directly to households. Um, if you're already using something like a Squarespace site, their commerce platform is pretty, um, is, is, is relatively appropriate. Um, their back end yeah. is not great for someone like me with 30 types of veggies because they're, we're going to talk in a bit about reports and like features on the back end to help you manage your, your 
like packing your orders and harvest, um, Squarespace isn't great for that. But if you're selling blueberries by the case and you want to get online and you haven't been before and you already have a Squarespace site, their, their commerce platform is probably going to work for you because it's, um, it's, it's a lot easier when you're just dealing with like one or two sites. All right. So the last segment I'm sharing in this episode is a feature conversation between one of our volunteer interviewers, Abra Bryn, who is a food policy analyst and Darren Qualman. I mentioned at the head of this episode that Darren is going to be giving our keynote speech at our live online gathering. That's on February 28th. But Darren also sat down for a long form conversation with Abra about regenerative agriculture and the climate crisis and different ways in which the farming industry and our food systems will need to adapt. It's, it's kind of meant to complement the speech he'll be giving at the end of February. Darren is the director of climate crisis policy and action for the National Farmers Union. And I pulled out a segment mostly focused on cattle and how the industry will need to adapt if we are going to keep raising cattle without having them make negative contributions to climate change. Here you go, and I will talk to you one more time at the end. I like that you've commented that cattle can be part of regenerative agriculture or a key part of it because um, I was just reading, uh, we have a new minister of, or a reappointed minister of agriculture as of our the um, October BC election, and one of her mandates is to support the creation of a regenerative agricultural network and the mandate does refer to um, an, to an agri-technology link, but I'd be much more excited and interested in having a beef link into, or a cattle link into a regenerative agriculture network. Um, so how about if we get into all the different ways in which cattle are raised, because uh, there can be huge differences in terms of, as you say, fossil fuel use, but also nitrogen fertilizer use, uh, the scale of uh, like the land, scale is can have a real impact carrying capacity of the land as well as just uh, the density of the the management production practices so how about you uh, tell us a little bit about some of the links between the management practices and um, the other the benefits that can be generated from those sure thanks yeah it, it's very interesting to dig into this so uh, one way that cattle can be raised is, is on grass. And when, when that happens, they really maximize a, a lot of benefits around soil and uh, diverse grassland ecosystems and, and biodiversity. Uh, other cattle uh, are raised in, in confinement. Uh, in Alberta, for instance, there's a lot of feedlots where cattle are fed grain. An interesting things, thing happens when you take cattle off grass, the methane emissions go down when they're in a feedlot and eating grain, they're not digesting all of that grass, cellulose and lignin. So the methane emissions actually go down. So to some extent, it's, it's the cattle on grass that, that creates the methane problem. And when you take them off grass, that methane goes down. But that's only the beginning of it because that grain that they're eating in those feedlots is itself the product of huge fossil fuel inputs and especially nitrogen fertilizer. So there's this whole plume of upstream emissions that goes, that goes into that. So really what we wanna do is we want to maximize the benefits we get from cattle while sort of managing some of those emissions. And probably the best way to do that is to have cattle grazing on grass. Despite the methane, uh, we wanna have them grazing on grass because that's where we get the benefits, the ecosystem benefits, the soil building benefits. 
And, and the key thing to remember here is we, cattle produce methane, but that's a completely natural thing. Ruminants have been grazing on grass for millions of years. And many will know that on the central plains of North America, there was a lot of bison. So it, it's, not, it's not really the case that we wanna somehow solve the methane problem by making it go away. The methane that comes out of cattle is, is natural. Like in some ways, like this carbon dioxide that comes out of us is natural. Um, and even, even in agriculture, humans domesticated cattle and other grazing livestock about 10,000 years ago. And for 9,900 years, the atmosphere was not changed by human livestock production. It's only in the last century that methane emissions and methane concentrations have skyrocketed. Uh, I should have mentioned at the beginning, methane is about three times higher. The concentration in the atmosphere is about three times higher. And that's really a function of just the last hundred years. So for 99% of the time that we raise cattle, uh, largely grazing on grass, it didn't affect the atmosphere and the climate. So at the beginning, you mentioned that a big part of what uh, is the focus of our work and uh, I, I think a shared concern is the livelihood of farmers. And I have to say, um, the market for grass-finished beef has been a hard one to create. And as someone who grew up on a farm where we grazed our own grass-finished beef, I personally think it's absolutely the best beef out there. But the consuming public has gotten awfully um, accustomed to grain-finished beef. So for me, in all of this, I always see a role for the consumer. And I think uh, there always needs to be a lot of education. But for some, it's like, I mean, I think that the, the possibility of converting people through the experience of tasting like a fresh harvested heritage tomato or a fabulous locally grown carrot could hopefully be the same with grass-finished beef, convincing people that in fact, uh, grass-finished beef not only will contribute to a positive measures around climate solutions, but also be a joy in their mouth. So I'm hoping that uh, that could happen down the road. Um, so is there anything else? Uh, what about the difference between uh, cattle raised for beef and those that are in the dairy sector? Is there anything there you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I would, but just let me, let me add one more piece to what you just said previously. Not only can that grass-finished beef be wonderful for the land and, and wonderful on the plate, it's also tremendously nutritious. I was at a conference where the, the person that was giving the talk about beef was literally a brain surgeon. And he happened to have equipment in his lab that looked at the fat composition of, of brain tissue. And he used it to measure the fat composition of beef. And he compared grain and grass finished beef and the omega-3 to omega-6 ratios. And the ratios for grass finished beef approached those of fish oils. Like it really is a, a different set of fats and, and tremendously healthy compared to the some of the grain finished beef. So yeah, it can be more nutritious as well. Uh, I do think there's huge opportunities for high quality grass finished, locally raised and locally slaughtered, slaughtered beef. And I know I'm pretty excited that the BC Cattlemen's Association has recently secured a lease to a federally registered plant, which will increase the opportunities for getting BC raised and BC processed beef into the grocery chains and onto people's plates. So 
So there's, there's still a lot of work to go to do to uh, increase people's access to this kind of good quality beef that we're fans of, mutual fans of, but I think that there's some heartening signs there. So I have been deeply involved with the organic sector going back to the mid-1990s and um, have a decided bias in that regard. Um, is there anything worth exploring in terms of uh, organic management practices of cattle that um, there might be some things that they could or should know around reducing um, emissions or maximizing the benefits? Yeah, I think there's some things that organic producers are doing already that are tremendously useful and helpful. One, one is that uh, the feeds that they use when, when they're not grazing the cattle, uh, and sometimes they can't graze all the time, the feed that they use rather those organic feeds are usually produced without nitrogen and, and other fertilizers and have a much lower emission signature than, uh, than commercial feeds. And the other thing that I, I think I see a lot of organic producers doing is using uh, manure very carefully and very efficiently and getting maximized maximum benefit out of that. And sometimes non-organic producers that have recourse to uh, chemical fertilizers aren't, aren't quite as careful in the way they use that manure. So I, I think uh, organic producers have some benefits that way. Thank you, uh, that's helpful. I do know that access to that manure is really critical for a lot of food production in the province, whether that's it's gardeners or other farmers. And so it uh, certainly is a problem when bad public policy reduces the animals on the, la on the landscape. Um, so what about, do you, what do you think as the future of cattle in Canada? I think there's probably a certain level of pressure on reducing the herd size with regards to climate change and methane emissions. But as you've just indicated, maybe it's more important to address feed and management practices and, and how we finish them. But is there anything else you'd like to say about the future of, can of cattle in Canada in terms of the livelihood of farmers, our food security and the benefits on to the environment? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot there to say. I'll, I'll give you the, the good hopeful part and then I'll, I'll say some of the challenges. So on, on balance, I think the, the future of, for cattle and cattle production is quite bright. Uh, they provide a number of, of benefits. Uh, like everything that humans do, they bring a mixture of benefits and problems. Uh, but you know that, that's really not the balance between the benefits and the problems isn't really a function of the cattle. It's a function of how we, we manage the cattle, how we, we structure the sector, um, you know, the scale, the, the ways we, that we graze those cattle, uh, the way that we market and then process and all those other things. So I, I think it's up to us to get that part right. But uh, the, the benefits are, are really, uh, really tr tr tremendous. So we need to do everything we can to, to maximize the benefits and minimize the, the downsides. So um, we need to practice best possible grazing, rotational grazing, holistic management, uh, regenerative agriculture, those sorts of things. Uh, we need to make sure that our, our grasslands are, are really healthy. Sometimes in, in tame pastures, you might want to include uh, legumes and uh, nitrogen fixing plants that make that grass grow better and make it more digestible. Um, we want to do everything we can to maximize the number of farms that have cattle so that we can have that mixed farms and, and uh, nutrient cycling. But there are a lot of challenges to creating that kind of maximum benefit 
climate compatible livestock sector. And, and we have a lot of those challenges here in Canada. Um, in our report tackling the farm crisis and the climate crisis, we talk about the cattle industrial complex. And what we have, and, and it gets at your point about uh, grass finishing, we have a sector that's really under the control of a few big corporations, uh, Cargill and JBS, uh, tremendous, tremendous control by those packers. And they're shaping it in a way that this is bad for everyone. Um, they're pushing farmers off the landscape. Uh, we've lost about half the cattle producers in a little over a generation. Uh, they're pushing down prices to farmers so that uh, the economics of, of cattle production is very poor. And thus, when, when farmers want to make investments in rotational grazing, you know, putting in water supplies, increased fencing, they're often really challenged to do that. It, it, they just don't have the, the capital to, to change their operations in ways that might reduce emissions. And, and at the same time, they're pushing up prices to consumers. So uh, we've done graphs we call the wedge graphs. And uh, you, you can sort of picture them. If you imagine the last uh, 40 or 50 years of cattle prices and hamburger prices, the, the price of cattle is this flat line across right at the bottom of the graph. And the price of hamburger just goes up and up and up and up. And the same thing with uh, pigs and pork chops. The price that the farmers receive has been flat for decades. Yet the price that people pay in the grocery store goes up and up and up and up. And uh, what we're seeing is the packers and retailers taking more and more. So farmers are becoming more efficient. Uh, farmers are becoming more productive. We're, we're setting all kinds of records that way. Yet the benefits are all being captured by the, the few corporations that control those processing and retailing channels. And uh, it makes it hard in a number of ways. It makes it hard to produce uh, alternative beef, organic beef, uh, to get premiums in the market, to sell grass-fed beef, all of those things. So really there's, there's some impediments to getting to the maximum benefit, minimum emission Today livestock I systems we need to get to. I don't need anything to live on except for a little old you. All right. So I hope you liked that, everyone. It was really nice to talk to you. I will be back here again at some point once all this conference stuff is done and I'm heading toward the main season. Kind of excited for a few things I want to try out. You know, probably just here and there. You know how it goes on this show. But anyway, if you want to check out the conference, if you want to consider buying a ticket, BC Organic 2021.eventbrite.ca. It's in the show notes. The promo code to use to get 30% off whatever the current price is. Ruminant 30. Ruminant 30. I hope to have some of you come over there and check it out and maybe be a part of the conference. Either way, I hope you enjoyed these segments and I miss you all. And now you can, you know, listen to the rest of Vanessa's song without me ruining it. Okay, bye. trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country 
With salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands I've been doing a lot of thinking Some real soul searching And here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car To keep my love going strong So we'll run right out into the wilds and graces We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces And live next door to the birds and the bees And live life like it was meant to be